and welcome to PwC IFRS Talks, your source for all things IFRS, technical accounting matters, business issues, current standard setting and regulatory updates. I'm your host, Andrea Pride, and today we're welcoming back Karsten Gansauga back to IFRS Talks. Welcome, Karsten. Thanks, Andrea. Glad to be back. I hope I got your name right this time because I've been practicing that. Carson's going to be telling us about what happened at the February IFRIC meeting where they discussed three topics, uh, sale and leaseback of an asset in a single asset entity, um, the preparation of financial statements when an entity is no longer a going concern and costs necessary to sell inventories. So let's start with the first topic, Carson. Um, the first topic was sale and leaseback of an asset in a single asset entity. And this is something that's been discussed before at the Interpretations Committee, and there was a September 2020 tentative agenda decision. Um, so I understand it's dealing with a narrow fact pattern, which one of the members said it very rarely or perhaps never arises. Um, but still, the IFRIC got 19 comment letters, which they analysed in, in this meeting. So can you tell us what the issue is, why it's so important, considering that it's a narrow issue, and um, about the feedback you received from the comment letters. Yeah, yeah, sure. So this topic certainly triggered a very interesting and intense debate. Actually, the debate was not so much around the exact fact pattern that was submitted, but more about the potential implications of any agenda decision on other similar fact patterns. So just as a quick reminder, this question is around which standard to apply in a situation where an entity sells an asset that sits in a legal entity and then leases that asset back from the entity. This issue was initially discussed at the, at the September meeting of last year, and we covered this in the podcast at the time. But just to remind folks, the submission is about a fact pattern where an entity owns 100% of the shares in a subsidiary. The sub only holds one asset, say a building, has no liabilities, and the building held by the entity does not meet the definition of a business. So the entity then enters into a transaction in which it sells all of its shares in its subsidiary that contains the building, and then leases the building back. So because the entity legally sells the shares in an entity that contains the building rather than the building itself, and then leases the building back, the question that was asked is essentially whether the accounting changes if the building is transferred via a share deal as compared to an outright sale of the building, or more specifically, whether the sale leaseback requirements in IFR 16 apply and how the gain on the sale is calculated. Essentially, the TED that was issued back in September stated that both IFRS 10 and IFRS 16 apply to the transaction and that the gain that is recognized in the transaction reflects the requirements in IFRS 60, so that only a proportion of the gain rather than the full gain would be recognized at the date of the transaction. Now, at this meeting, the committee analyzed the comment letters received. And also, in terms of next steps, the staff paper outlined two possible options, which is to either finalize the agenda decision or to recommend narrow scope standard setting to the board. So looking at the feedback from the comment letters, most of the respondents agreed with the outcome of the tentative agenda decision for the specific fact pattern. But many respondents raised concerns on specific aspects of the analysis or suggested standard setting in some way. But there, there was also a sense that the submitted fact pattern was quite niche and that many questions remain around what the analysis would mean for other similar fact patterns. 
Okay, so could you tell us what the committee members thought about the concerns that were raised in the comment letters and then how the committee decided to respond to those concerns? Sure. So my sense is that many of the concerns that were articulated in the comment letters, especially around the potentially broader implications for other similar fact patterns, were shared by essentially all committee members in one way or another. So in practice, we are typically seeing fact patterns that are more complex than the one described in the submission. So in the transactions that we are seeing in practice, the subsidiary would often contain multiple assets and, and often also contain tax liabilities or other liabilities. Or the subsidiary may contain an operating business where some of the assets that are contained in that business are leased back. Also, quite often, the entity would sell less than 100% of the shares and either retain some shares or there may be NCIs involved. So there are quite a bit of questions around what any agenda decision on this matter would mean for those more complex fact patterns. So, for example, the fact pattern states that the entity just contains a single asset. So would the analysis change if the entity contained multiple assets and liabilities or business? The fact pattern also states that the entity sells 100% of the shares. So how would the analysis change if the entity sold less than 100% of the shares? There seem to be mixed views among committee members on where to draw the line. So even though there seemed to be a strong consensus amongst committee members around the outcome of the proposed agenda decision for the simple fact pattern that has been submitted, there was a concern that the agenda decision may not be that helpful for the more complex fact patterns that we see in practice. I think that discussion has reinforced that even though there's a pretty consistent agreement that the outcome in the agenda decision is the appropriate outcome for the narrow fact pattern provided, there were different views around where to draw the line for the more complex fact patterns. So ab about how slight changes to the fact pattern would or would not affect the conclusion. So given that the committee would be opining on a fact pattern which most things would rarely, if ever, exist in, 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 the, in its exact facts, in, inevitably the question is going to be, you know, how far would people have to apply this agenda decision when they're looking at other similar fact patterns? So. I think the committee was conscious of the fact that based on the current status of discussions, it would appear you know, that different committee members might give different answers on some of the more complex fact patterns that we see in practice. And so I think the committee acknowledged that to issue an agenda decision, we need to be comfortable that we actually help improve consistency in practice, which would not necessarily be the case if we consider the applicability of the agenda decision on the, on the more complex factor that I mentioned. So for these reasons, after some intense debate, the majority of the committee supported Neuroscope standard setting to address this issue. Okay, thanks, Karsten. So it sounds a little bit as if the committee are worried about being answering a trick question and it being taken in the wrong way elsewhere, and that's why they support the yeah. Neuroscope standard setting. Great, thank yeah. you. Okay, let's move on to the next topic. And so the next one I'm going to talk about is the new topic um, relating to going concern. And as we've heard in the last couple of podcasts, going concerns been quite topical recently, and particularly in relation to disclosures when entities are going concerns. But this issue was actually about some specific questions asked around what happens when an entity is not a going concern. So could you tell us about the IFIX conclusions um, here, please? Yeah, sure. So the committee received a request about the accounting applied by an entity that is no longer a going concern. 
The request essentially asks two questions. So let's cover those one after another. So the first question was whether such an entity can prepare a financial statement for prior periods on a going concern basis if it was a going concern in those periods and has not previously prepared financial statements for those periods. So let's look at an example to illustrate. Say an entity has not yet prepared its annual financial statements for the years 2018 and 2019, and management concluded that the, that the entity was able to continue as a going concern during those years. Now, let's say in 2020, management decides to voluntarily liquidate the entity, and after this decision was made, the entity prepares its annual financial statements for, for the previous years, including 2018 and 2019. So the question is whether those prior year financial statements for 2018 and 2019 would be prepared on a going concern basis or on a non-going concern basis. And on this question, the committee tentatively decided that an entity that is no longer a going concern cannot prepare financial statements on a going concern basis. This would include those financial statements for prior periods that have not yet been authorized for issue. So in the example that I just mentioned, an entity cannot prepare any of these financial statements, including those for 2018 and 2019, on a going concern basis. This is because those financial statements have all been authorized for issue after the decision to liquidate the entity. Okay, that makes sense. So what about the second question then? Yeah, on the, on the second question was whether an entity would restate comparative information if it had previously prepared financial statements for the comparative period on a going constant basis. So let's again look at an example. Let's assume an entity had previously prepared its 2090 financial statements on a going constant basis and determines for its 2020 financial statements that it can no longer prepare financial statements on a non-going constant basis. The question that was asked is whether that entity would then be required to restate comparative information. So on this second question, the staff conducted some outreach and observed no diversity in the application of IFRS with respect to this question. So entities generally do not restate comparative information when they first prepare financial statements on a basis that is not a going concern basis. Therefore, the committee has not obtained evidence that the matter has widespread effect and you know, therefore decided not to add a standard setting project to the work plan. So based on the outreach, it appears that essentially there's no diversity in this area, as no companies could be identified that do restate in this situation. I think certainly for public companies, fact patterns like this are quite rare. Uh, in my experience, you would see them sometimes for non-public non entities and also uh, for limited life entities. But frankly, I think this is perhaps, perhaps a bit of a niche question. So overall, this was a relatively short discussion and committee members were you know, broadly supportive around the analysis proposed by the staff. So, so the committee voted to issue, um, to issue the tentative agenda decision as drafted with only you know, minor wording adjustments. Okay, great, thank you. The last issue that the EFIC discussed was also one for initial consideration about which costs are included as part of the estimated costs necessary to make the sale when determining the net realizable value of inventories, which is quite a mouthful. So I guess this is an issue that will have potentially wider applicability than the previous one. And again, there was an extensive discussion and a wide range of views. Yeah. 
So this is a topic around the evaluation of inventories. So so relevant for almost any entity, although it may be you know more material to some entities than to others. Um, whilst almost entity would any entity would be affected, I understand that this issue is particularly relevant in some industries. You know, such as for example in the fashion retail space. So what's the issue? Now, as you mentioned. The request is about the cost that an entity includes as the estimated cost necessary to make the sale when determining the net realizable value or NRV of inventories. So in particular, the request asks whether an entity includes all costs necessary to make the sale or only those that are incremental to the sale of an inventory item. Now, as a reminder, IS2 requires entities to measure inventories at the lower of cost and NRV. So IS2 defines the net realizable value as the estimated selling price in the ordinary cost of business, less the estimated cost of completion and the estimated cost necessary to make the sale. However, while IS2 describes the objective of in writing inventories down to the net realizable value, so that objective is to avoid inventories being carried in excess of amounts expected to be realized from their sale and also include some requirements about how an entity estimates the NRV of inventories. IS2 does not identify which specific costs are necessary to sell inventories. Now, the submitter asks which costs an entity includes as part of the estimated cost necessary to make the sale when determining the NRV of in inventories and describes two views that have been observed in practice. So the first view would be that an entity includes all costs needed to make the sale. And the second view is essentially that an entity includes only additional or incremental costs required by the particular condition of the inventories to make the sale. Okay, and the IFRIC decided to issue a tentative agenda decision for this topic. Can you tell us how they got there? Yeah, sure. Now, now, my sense is that there was quite a bit of confusion around you know, what each of these views mean exactly. In particular, some committee members read view one to suggest a full cost approach. If that was the case, in my personal experience, there are hardly any companies that would apply such a full cost approach currently. Also, there was a bit of debate on the term additional versus incremental cost and what these terms would encompass exactly. Now. I think quite helpfully, the staff clarified at the beginning of the discussion that they did not suggest in their analysis that IS2 would require a full cost approach. So the tentative agenda decision, you know, would really just say that there's no basis to limit the cost to be included in the estimated cost necessary to make the sale to just incremental costs. But it would not identify which specific costs would, be in, would need to be included. It would also not suggest that a full cost approach has to be applied. So essentially, the committee decided to issue the tentative agenda decision as drafted, but with a few, you know, I would say rather substantial amendments, mainly to remove any potential notion that IS2 might require a full cost approach. So my sense is that, you know, going beyond that, specifying which costs would need to be included in the cost necessary to make the sale would go beyond the requirement in IS2. I think this means that some judgment will remain for entities in determining which costs would be included, but I think this is the right outcome. 
IS-2 does not include any further guidance on which specific costs are to be included. So the committee felt that they could not go beyond that without changing or adding to the requirements in IFRS. So my sense is that many folks that read the staff paper initially felt that a full cost approach was being suggested. So the, the staff helpfully clarified that they were not suggesting such an approach, which was confirmed by the committee. My sense is that in practice, there are hardly any entities that apply a full cost approach at the moment. So implementing such an approach would have been quite an onerous exercise for many entities. You know, that would have required significant changes to processes and systems. So my sense is that many entities will probably be you know, quite happy with where the committee got to on this matter. Okay, good. Right, so the, that was the February meeting and the next meeting will be in March. So what do we have to look forward to at that meeting? You know, the, the committee published four tentative agenda decisions in December that have not yet come back as the comment period for these you know, only ends um, mid-February. Now, these four tentative agenda decisions are, you know, first around the IS-1 amendments or classification of debt with covenants as current or non-current. Second, around IS-19 and how to attribute benefits to periods of service in a particular employee benefit scheme. Then third, around IS-38 and how to account for configuration or customization costs in a cloud computing arrangement. And last, around IFRS 9 and whether IFRS 9 allows hedging of abilities and cash flows due to changes in real interest rates. Uh, besides these tentative agenda decisions, there are also two new matters in the pipeline that the staff is currently analyzing and that have not yet been discussed by the committee. So the first one of these new matters is around the accounting for warrants that are initially classified as liabilities and you know, whether subsequent classification as equity might be appropriate in specific circumstances when the exercise price of a warrant is initially variable, but fixed at some point. So the issue is about the accounting at the point in time when the exercise price becomes fixed. And the second new issue is around how to account for non-refundable VAT on lease payments, which in my experience is quite a significant issue in a, in a few industries. This, of course, depends also on the tax system the entity operates in and involves some questions around whether VAT on lease payments are included in lease payments or whether the guidance on levies in EFRIC 21 might apply. So more, some more exciting stuff to come. Yeah, sounds like there's something to look forward to. Um, okay, so Carson, thank you so much for telling us all about IFRIC um, today in this podcast. And then thanks to all our listeners as well. Um, all I have to say now is stay safe and happy accounting. The preceding programme was brought to you by PricewaterhouseCoopers LLP. This content is for general information purposes and is not a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.